Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the week's most interesting and compelling seafood news. I'm Drew Cherry, Editor-in-Chief, and I am joined today by a fantastic suite of our team. We have Rachel Sapin, Senior Business Reporter here in Seattle, along with Executive Editor John Fiorillo, also here in the Pacific Northwest. And then we have John Evans, Correspondent, way down south in Brazil. Hello, everybody. We've chosen a few of our, uh, of our, most, uh, our hottest stories of the week. And the big one uh, we'll kick off with is the Alaska salmon season. It has been a fantastic year for Bristol Bay. Uh, the run uh, is, uh, uh, of salmon has been phenomenal. Of sockeye salmon has been phenomenal. The catch has been great. Um, markets seem relatively eager. All in all, um, Rachel, you have been right on top of this. Tell us a bit about Bristol Bay and what kind of a season everyone thinks it was. Bristol Bay had a really um, good season overall. Uh, the fishermen were very enthusiastic, and particularly those in the Nushigak uh, River District, which uh, just saw huge influxes of fish this year. Um, and I guess overall, they've just gotten to about a 40 million uh, sockeye harvest. So it's probably not going to beat uh, the 2019 levels of 43 million this late in the season, but it, it's certainly um, going to beat uh, 2020. And they had this run, really huge run of about 63 million fish. Um, you know, there has been some issues still for Alaska. Uh, they have seen smaller fish in recent years, which, um, you know, they say is a problem. Uh, and some scientists that have been focusing on the uh, fishery are thinking maybe it's warming waters and climate change. That's kind of something to look out for. Um, also, we're seeing that, um, you know, while sockeye in Bristol Bay had a real record year again, um, you know, other species are suffering. We really saw no um, king salmon or coho this year. Um, and we're just starting to focus now on the pink salmon season. Yeah, we'll talk about pinks in just in just a second. Um I want to talk a bit about the prices that companies are paying for uh, sockeye salmon this year, um, because you were able to uh, to dig down and get some of the uh, some of the prices per pound of the, some of the largest producers there in Bristol Bay. It seems that one thing, um, or we know that one thing that was very different is the uh, the new Peter Pan Seafoods, uh, which is under new ownership. Um, has really tried to come in. They did this with with Copper River. They they uh, came out and said we're paying record prices. They gave a very public pronouncement of the price they were going to pay uh, for Bristol Bay sockeye, and that's highly unusual for most of of uh, at least my life. Um, it's always been uh, a quiet thing, and it's always been much of the chagrin of the the fishermen. Something where there has there has lacked transparency. Um, John Fiorillo, I'll ask you a bit: Is this kind of heralding a new era of transparency on uh, salmon purchasing prices and a, a change in how things are going, or is this sort of Peter Pan trying to make a name for itself and win back some some of the fishing fleet? Yeah, I, I guess it, it's too early to tell, but uh, from a fisherman's point of view, I'm sure they would love this transparency uh, to continue. But yeah, I think your second point is, you know, Peter Pan under new ownership 
is trying to bounce back from years of kind of, um, you know, just it's just been kind of going downward for years. Um, so there definitely is a bit of look at me, look at me going on. And this was an example of a strategy to um, get the fishermen's attention with an early season price. Um, you know, try to build their fleet back up because their fleet has been diminished over the years. As fishermen have uh, moved to other uh, processors such as Trident and uh, Silver Bay and those, those uh, types. So I think, you know, that is a component of this. But, you know, a year from now, we'll we'll see what happens if if uh, Peter Pan gets out there in front again, or maybe one of the other ones. I mean, one thing that did happen is the other processors, not not as early as Peter Pan, but they did come out and actually state a price publicly. I mean, they went to, in some cases, they went to pretty uh, uncommon lengths to make it known what they're paying. And that, you know, you mentioned in your, your lifetime, I mean, that just, it's, so uncommon it's so unlike this fishery so um hopefully i mean i love <laughs> i love the fact that there's some transparency in the pricing myself yeah i mean it does seem to lay a groundwork for um you know for for um how fishermen can sort of understand the markets better there are a lot more fishermen um, that are doing direct to market and online sales and and maybe fishermen themselves are a bit more empowered uh, because of e-commerce and Rachel you've talked to a few of these people is that kind of your sense that we'll see more of these fishermen kind of branding themselves and lose, using that as a launching pad to to try to get more of their product to sell direct to them rather than go only through the big companies yeah, I think it's, you know, it's going to be kind of a hybrid model. I think, uh, you know, fishermen, particularly younger fishermen, um, are just seeing that they can make more money and have more control over, um, you know, their whole supply chain uh, when they do a direct-to-consumer model. Consumers are interested in that model. They're still pretty interested in that model after the pandemic. But I don't know if we'll totally ever get away from um, people wanting to fish for the big companies like uh, Trident and, and Peter Pan and Silver Bay, um, just because it is a lot of work, um, I hear still. And honestly, it's kind of interesting. You really see a lot more of the um, independent uh, direct-to-consumer business models popping up in the Copper River fishing district mm. um, versus Bristol Bay, which is kind of interesting. And I think we need to dive into that. I'm, I'm not quite sure what market dynamics are going on there. Um, but maybe John Fiorillo, you've covered it a long time too and fished it a long time ago. Or no, you were a processor. I'm sorry. I always think you're a fisherman. No, he was a lowly, <laughs> lowly, slime a lowly yeah, guy on the processor. I don't even think they let him on the processing line. I think he was just moving boxes or, or something. I, I, I was on the, the the line is is a long line, Drew. They, they there's a lot of things that happen on the line, but indeed, I was taking frozen large ice cubes of salmon and putting them in boxes and then shipping them down the line. So yeah, that was fun. Well, you but, had a child who fished in. I did. I my bay, son so fished in the bay. Yeah, a lot but of good intel. <laughs> <laughs> but to your point, yeah, I could see it. I could see it more being more effective on Copper River because 
uh, the difference there is so many fish come in Bristol Bay so fast and you know these these guys just want to pack their boats get the boat to the processors go back out pack the boat again it's a it's a whole volume you know madhouse kind of thing there and it, it would be difficult to overlay a whole marketing and sales component to that for an individual fisherman anyways you know, I, I want to shift over a, a, a little bit. You're you're both making me think too, and we're talking about uh, processing and and talking about, uh, you know, uh, talking about uh, a lot of the, the difficult jobs that are um, that are there for um, for for folks uh, seasonally. Um, it it's been kind of a an interesting period of time. Uh, I want to dedicate more of this time to a longer podcast and some of the other uh, reporting that we've kind of talked about. Um, because we do want to do more stories on this, but there does seem to be uh, some some real um, empowerment, I guess you could say, or at least some feeling a, a little bit of bold, more boldness on the part of workers that they do want to push back against some of these uh, conditions, and they are kind of demanding more uh, more uh, rights. And I think part of this transparency with the fishing sector is going to um, it's going to be, I think, across the board, and I think we're seeing this. We're seeing this globally. That I think uh, workers in the seafood industry, be they on boats, be they in the factories, um, that that they are. There is a, a movement afoot um, for for uh, for better treatment, and I, I think that's um, yeah. I think that's going to be interesting to look at. We'll look at that another time uh, in more detail, but let's stick with labor. John Evans, uh, you've been tracking this uh, over in the UK. Um, it's a good lens to see things through because labor shortages have been a, a major issue. Um, and as I said, uh, particularly uh, with the recovery of the pandemic, people are a little bit um, less uh, willing to go back to these frontline jobs, but the UK has kind of a, a particular a particular set of circumstances that are um, that are, are complicated. Given that it's not just COVID, but it's also Brexit, etc. So tell us the situation right now. It's still relatively uh, ugly and has some some food shortages on the shelves at retail. Uh, where are we? Um, yeah, it's it, it, there's, there's a lot of things in the mix, as you said, and, and part of it uh, stems from about two weeks ago with the uh, the NHS, the National Health Service uh, app on people's phones, rang about uh, 620,000 people uh, in a week and asked them and, and advised them to uh, isolate. Um, they only have to uh, isolate by law if they're actually uh, followed up by the uh, the, uh, the track and trace system of the NHS, but um, that put a lot of people suddenly out of um, commission uh, in all kinds of trades, not just uh, seafood processing. And um, it came as well when people are coming out of lockdown or, or, or out of COVID restrictions, the restrictions are loosening and they want to take holidays. So as the um, Seafood Processors Alliance uh, told me, you know, some members are 10 to 30 percent short of workers suddenly because either they're on holiday or uh, they've been pinged, as they call it. This call this thing about being pinged by the, the app is, is uh, now got its own name, the pingdemic. Um, and yes, yeah, so, so uh, processors are, are struggling with that. And then, as you mentioned, there is a Brexit, which um, has led to 
uh, European workers going going back in droves to their home home countries and staying there, and some of them not applying for um, settled what is known as settled status, um, and others going home because they don't feel welcome anymore because of Brexit. Um, and then we had, of course, we had the we already had a perfect storm of. Um, industrial structural changes, overhaul of UK self-employment tax rules and a severe lack of uh, trained truck drivers, which I think we've mentioned before, which in the short term runs to 30,000 drivers or 20 or 30,000 drivers, depending on which figures you, you believe. I've heard 15,000 as well and uh, 70,000 uh, longer term. So there's a lot of different factors in there at the moment. And, and it's not just... Um, it's not just uh, a, a British problem or European problem in the United States as well. Um, you know, people are, as you mentioned, not so keen to come back to jobs where companies may have not treated them so well during the pandemic. And it's hard to compete with Amazon, Home Depot and other dry warehouse businesses. Um, so that has pushed the, the, the cost of uh, labour up for uh, seafood processors in the United States, and uh, you know the, the the kind of people they're looking for are equipment operators, forklift drivers, pallet jack operators, and saw and knife operatives. So yeah, it's it's quite. A, it'd be interesting to see. I, I mean, I don't know because I'm not there, but you know what what's going to happen in terms of the furlough scheme coming to an end and 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 uh, state benefits in in um, in the United States, will will that make a difference? Well, I think it will get. You know, there there. Obviously, it's a political issue, but there is there has been some evidence that some of those uh, some of the unemployment benefits have kept some people out of the workforce. Um, but those uh, those governments are sorry, those governors in Republican states firmly believe that. And um, in uh, in uh, governors and states that are um, majority Democratic uh, argue uh, a different way. But either either way, they are coming to an end. There is a recognition that, you know, there, there may be some element of that that's kept some people out of the workforce. But I think um, anywhere you go, as you sort of get out from under the pandemic, at, at least for me, I see uh, hiring signs. I mean everywhere. Um, everybody is hiring right now, in particular in restaurants. Um, you know, you see in particular manual labor jobs. Um, so, so there is an absolute need for, for, for workers, but I think you hit on it. And, and I think what we're talking about is, is a big part of it too, that I, you know, COVID has really led to a lot of soul searching on the part of all kinds of people. Um, and about the kinds of work that they're willing to do and the kinds of pay that they're willing to take for it. Um, and, and there is, there is a lot of choice out there for jobs right now. Um, you know, and, and maybe it's, it's not dramatically different from what, uh, from what an employee was doing before, but there are sign on bonuses. There are incentives. There are a lot of efforts being made to get people to, um, to join uh, companies, and that's on you know that's all over the place as well. And I actually this morning saw John um, that Tesco is is offering bonuses to truck drivers, big bonuses to sign on um, and and uh, and deliver um, you know deliver their goods. So 
Um, yeah, so I, I, I think it is going to hit um, probably the seafood industry as well. But it's so it's such a seasonal high right now in the Alaska salmon sector that I don't know that we're going to see um, too much by way of that until um, you know until after that. Because certainly, I don't know, Rachel, if you've heard about any shortages in Alaska, but um, in the salmon sector, but I haven't. Yeah, not so much the salmon sector, um, but I'm. It I think where it's really hitting is the processing facilities. Um, you know, again, where you have those uh, really close working conditions and uh, long hours, and you know, it's just a little different culture between the fishermen and and the processors. So that's where I've heard there's the labor shortages, and that's where we've we've seen a lot of the lawsuits too coming out um, recently, class action ones regarding. Uh, wage theft allegations and um, other issues with unsafe working conditions. So yeah, I think uh, workers are really wanting companies to step up um, in the treatment in those in processing facilities, and and rightly so, I think. I think that we're going to see a pretty big movement toward that, um, just globally across uh, the processing sector. Like I said, and I think in particular. Um, in particular in the U.S. So um, as I said, we'll be diving down into that and, and looking at all these issues because um, it's going to impact the, the sector in a, in a big way, we think. Let's move on to, uh, I don't know, the lighter side of the news. I'm not sure. Don Young has been uh, my congressman for my entire life. He has been around a long time. So uh, his comments uh, this week were a little bit strange um he uh he has introduced a uh a bill and uh and and rachel maybe you can tell us about it but the thrust of it is that he wants a lot more uh restrictions uh on offshore aquaculture um if not an outright uh ban on it in alaska waters yeah yeah don young um participated earlier this week in a pretty big hearing that just um involved a lot of different seafood measures um he specifically was uh behind a bill called the keep fin fish free act which um wants to prohibit the secretary of interior and the secretary of commerce from authorizing commercial finfish aquaculture operations in the federal exclusive economic zone, unless authorized by Congress. Um, he introduced the bill a few years ago in 2019. Um, it didn't really go anywhere. And he kind of just gave a couple minute speech at the hearing his, um, about his bill. So he didn't really elaborate on his thoughts a ton, but he did say that, you know, is it a climate kind of got into um, that, you know, climate change is affecting the fish and maybe something to do with a nuclear submarine stuck somewhere. I'm not <laughs> sure about that one. If anyone wants to write me to explain, please feel free. Um, and then also, I guess, um, you know, he's just saying, oh, add on, you know, another salmon farm to our woes and you're just going to destroy our industry. But um, what John Fiorillo and I kind of dove into writing that one up is just the fact that um, you know, he kind of called the operations hatcheries um, that he didn't want in the state. Um, and Alaska has a pretty big hatchery operation uh, for its largely pink and chum uh, salmon production in the Prince William Sound area has um, 30 uh, hatcheries operated by private nonprofit corporations in the state. And in 2019, um, hatchery produced salmon 
accounted for 25% of Alaska's total salmon harvest. So I'm just, I'm a little unclear. Um, maybe he didn't mean to say hatchery while he was speaking during that meeting, but um, yeah, it was just a little unclear um, how he's differentiating uh, these offshore fin fish operations from the hatcheries. I don't think you're unclear. I think that uh, Congressman Young's unclear because yes, that is something that uh, over the years uh, is is not something that Alaskans like pointed out. I think over time they've kind of realized that you know um, it is what it is, um, and and they've been able to sort of square that circle in their minds. It it was uh, it was a contentious issue at one point for. Um, for eco-label certification under the Marine Stewardship Council. Um, so it's it's been a, a yeah, it, it's been a hot button issue for years and years. So um, but um, I guess Don Young has a lot of other a lot of other things to worry about. Um, but but I think you know for one, in the state's waters, fin fish farming is illegal. Um, and that's been since oh, I don't know, the early 90s, very early 90s, I think. Um, which, you know, I've argued over the years is probably um, a little bit too blunt of an instrument. There, there may be opportunities um, for, um, you know, as, as, you're, uh, as you were writing about, Rachel, for offshore aquaculture. Um, ultimately, there are a lot of calculations to make when you have such a, a massive, healthy run of wild fish and whether or not you want to uh, in any way endanger that. But um, at any rate, it, it seemed uh, a bit, uh, I don't know. Um, John Fiorillo, do you have an opinion on this? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure quite where this would be coming from. If there's, um, you know, uh, if any of the seafood companies uh, might have encouraged this, I would kind of doubt that since many of them are uh, certainly trading in, in farm salmon and other farm species, and some of them have aquaculture operations and their portfolio so i i don't know what's uh what's your thought on where he was coming from on this i think he's he he's coming from the point of there's a void right now as far as the biden administration's concerned uh trump uh the trump administration was really clear it set this whole thing in motion to uh, among other things, you know, develop an offshore aquaculture industry in the United States, which NOAA has been striving to do since God knows when and never got anywhere. So, um, but the Biden administration has yet to, you know, uh, publicly say whether they're going to follow Trump's lead here or, uh, you know, just scutter this whole thing. So, I think that's, uh, I think Don stepped into that void and, you know, tried to get out uh, in front of it, so to speak, with, with, uh, to direct policy a little bit. I, I don't think it'll matter in the end, but, you know, <laughs> I mean, you mentioned it, Alaska raises a lot of fish. I mean, the, their hatchery system produces, in 2019, as Rachel mentioned, they produced 50 million hatchery salmon that, you know, they let go out to the ocean, which is basically the net pen for these fish, grow and come back, and uh, mostly pinks, some chums, and, 
it's it's a it's a farming operation. It, every every farming operation, whether it's Atlantic salmon in Norway or you know pinks in Alaska, starts in the hatchery. So, um, as you said, they Alaska has come to terms with it in a, in its own way, which is fine. But you have to keep in mind that a lot of those fisheries would not exist without those hatchery supplementations. So. Um, it's just an interesting um, paradox to me, but um, yeah. Rachel, I mean, you, you've been covering offshore aquaculture um, pretty closely for the past few years. Um, is there any sense, given what John said about the Trump administration's encouragement and um, you know clear platform for uh, growth in, in offshore aquaculture, is there any sense, even with this Biden sort of void, that uh, offshore aquaculture in federal waters has momentum? Yeah, it's it's so unclear where, like, you know, where the Biden administration stands on that issue. Um, it's just really hard. I don't think an administration has been as pro-offshore aquaculture as Trump, really, at least in my memory of reporting on politics like um you know i think uh it was just really unprecedented trump's trump's um endorsement of offshore <laughs> so i don't know that um it is very clear yet where the Biden administration stands you know they've been really focused more on climate change related measures and kind of limiting um the commercial fishing i believe with that 30 by 30 act uh that's kind of still their big focus um i know they are very focused on ways to, um, you know, reduce climate change. And one of those ways is uh, Biden's executive order that um, could prohibit commercial fishing across at least 30% of the nation's exclusive economic zone by 2030. So I'm not quite sure um, he would just be gung-ho for uh, offshore aquaculture like Trump was. But think about this on a practical level, right? Okay, so one of the things uh, Trump part of Trump's plan was to streamline all the regulations and permitting that would ha have to be done to put a offshore farm off California, Florida, wherever you want. And this is for God, since I can remember, this has been Noah's, you know, excuse or problem, you know, the permitting process needs to be blah, blah. Okay. So <laughs> let's just wave the magic wand and they get the permitting process solved. Do you honestly think there'll be a farm within the next decade, two decades off any coast that I just don't because once that whole process starts, environmental groups will step in, it'll go to court, on and on and on and on. So uh, while Don is doing his best to keep keep the invaders off the Alaska coast, I don't think he has to worry a whole lot, unfortunately, uh, for the uh, people who want to you know farm off the, off the coast so well and then apparently there are nuclear submarines down there that we need to that's watch true. out for that's true that's <laughs> true they're hiding he said no one needs to focus on the ocean unless on other places so i don't know directive. <laughs> it seems everybody's focused on the ocean and the, the way i see it but okay i'll, I'll go with them whatever yeah i mean it, it's just like the united states i i agree with 
John there. I mean, the culture of um, just like litigation and environmental groups and seaspiracy fueled stuff. Um, it's really hard to get any <laughs> model of uh, of uh, these kind of offshore or land based uh, farms going that are really trying to you know innovate the the model we already have. And there's an easy way to tell if this if things are really gonna take off. <laughs> if there's investment coming into it. And right now there's virtually none, as opposed to land-based, Drew's favorite subject, where investment is pouring into it. So uh, if you start seeing investors come in and funds come in in a big way for offshore aquaculture in the United States, yeah, that then things are probably gonna happen. That's, that's my take on it. All right, folks, so we'll wrap it up there. Thanks for joining us. Uh, just a reminder, on September 19th, we uh, are having our annual Salmon Summit. It will be online like so many other events, but uh, we're really excited about this. We've got a couple fantastic panels that are lined up. In particular, we have some former CEOs, which I'm really excited about because they will be uh, I'm hoping and assuming uh, much more uh, open with their opinions on the salmon farming sector. So um, that is going to be uh, fantastic. Don't miss it. You can go to intrafishevents.com and you can register for it there. All right, folks, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks again for joining us.